Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. I missed you last Sunday. I wasn't here. Thank you to Justin for opening a new series for us as we began Lent. We started a series called Five Great Prayers for Lent. They're powerful prayers. They're vital prayers. They're prayers that we can learn from and prayers that we can maybe grow to imitate in our own prayer life. They can teach us a lot about talking with God. Last week, Justin looked at Hannah's prayer, really two prayers in 1 Samuel 1 and 2. One prayer where she lays it all out on the table, nothing hidden. She goes, what's the point? God knows my heart anyways. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set it out there and talk to him about it. And then a follow-up prayer, praising God for his faithfulness. If you missed us, catch it online. I caught up last week by watching it online. Today, I want to look at the pattern and, and kind of the presence of prayer in Daniel's life, the prophet Daniel in the Old Testament. So grab your Bible. You can use the index at the beginning to find the book of Daniel if you need to. Uh, it's page 762 if you have the exact Bible that I have. If not, you may need to look it up. But we're going to look at Daniel. And I want to give you a little bit of context, a little bit of background on Daniel. So as we get to reading, you have kind of an understanding of what's going on in his life and, and what kind of situation he was living this moment out in. So Daniel was a part of a conquered people. Uh, when Daniel was 15 years old, Jerusalem was ransacked by the Babylonians, and Daniel, along with many other Israelites, were exiled. They were deported to Babylon. They were now captives in a foreign nation. If you look at Psalm 137, it talks to you about how bad it really was when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem. It says that they mocked the people, they mocked their God, they ransacked their city, and they killed their children. Literally, Psalm 137 says that the Babylonians took the Hebrew babies and they threw their bodies against hard rocks. That's, that's the awful atrocity happening in Daniel's day. He was then taken as a captive and brought to live in Babylon. When you get to Daniel 1, we find that Daniel as a young man is selected with a few others to be kind of used by the Babylonians in a strange way to try to control the exiled people to where he's kind of one of the exiles, but he has a place in, in their government and their leadership system. And, and for all of Daniel's life from then forward, he was kind of stuck in the middle, being this exile, being this captive, being this oppressed people, seeking to always be faithful to God, to be faithful to his people. But at the same time, he has a real place in the secular, immoral, polytheistic, awful society of the Babylonians. When we read the story, we find the lesson that you probably learned somewhere along the way, maybe in elementary school. Maybe if you haven't learned it, this is the first unofficial lesson of the day. The lesson is that there's always a bigger bully somewhere, right? We, you've experienced that. You experienced it in your job today, probably still. And sure enough, it happened eventually. The Persians came in and they destroyed the Babylonians. They overthrew them. And they come in and they overtake Babylon. Babylon was full of exiles from many nations, not just the Jewish people, but many exiles from different places were all under the thumb of the Babylonians. And so the Persians come in, sweep the Babylonians out and say, well, these are all ours now. And at the end of chapter 5, we're introduced to a man named Darius the Mede. Somebody say Darius. Darius. We're going to learn a lot about Darius. We're going to read about Darius today. 
When you get to chapter 6, what's happening, this is where we'll be today, is Daniel chapter 6. If you found Daniel yet, if not, I'm stalling, I'm giving you more time. <laughs> Daniel 6, when you get to Daniel 6, what's going on here is we're finding the Persians are setting up their new government. They've come in, they've taken over, they've taken over the Babylonian people, all the exiles that are underneath them, and they're placing a governmental system over all of the people living there. Here's verse 1. It seemed good to Darius, this is our guy, the, the, the new king in this territory. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And the word satrap means protector of the kingdom. They're like governors over states or districts or regions. That's how you can think of them. Verse 2, and over the satraps, Darius placed three commissioners or administrators. I'm going to call them presidents today because we're in the Western modern world. This is how we're going to kind of equate their governmental system. Uh, they had a king. His name was Darius. They had all of these governors over all these states. There's 120 of them. And Darius goes, God, that's a lot of people to keep control over. It's a lot of people to be watching and trying to manage. So I will put three presidents over the 120 governors. Think of it that way. Of whom, verse 2 says, Daniel was one. So you see Daniel's place in this story at this point. He is an exiled Jewish man who's lived most of his life as a captive with one foot in captivity and one foot in a place in the political system. He's a man who has incredible integrity. We're going to see that in verse 4 in a moment. He has a reputation for it. It's helped him to rise in honor. And, and what we'll see in verse 2 is he has a very high-ranking role in the system now. Here's his job description. All of, of these satraps, three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, here's the job, that the satraps would be accountable to the presidents, right, and that the king might not suffer loss. So his job was to make sure there was no embezzling, no crooked deals, no governors tried to build their own little kingdoms and rise up against uh, Darius at some point. He is a vital part of, of the political system in this territory. Now, of the three presidents, Daniel was the one. He was the best one. Verse 3 says this. Then Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. We'll come back to that. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. So <laughs> if you've ever had a job and, and been promoted or you've seen someone else promoted, you know what it's like when everyone else around you sees that happen. Everyone starts to look and go, wait a second, why does he get the job, huh? And so there's two other presidents, and now they're going to become vice presidents under this one president. And guess what? This guy, this guy is one of the conquered people. Why is he getting this role, right? That's how they're feeling. And it says that Darius, one of the things he noticed about him is he had an extraordinary spirit. And we don't know exactly what extraordinary spirit means. It could be he had the best attitude. He had a plucky spirit, and Darius just liked him. Now, he's over 80 now, so plucky, I don't know, maybe you can be plucky at 80, I'm not sure. It could be that he had incredible ability. He was just really good at his job. It could be that his integrity, we'll read more about that, that his integrity just shined through. And Darius knew, I can count on this guy. I can trust this guy implicitly. This is my guy. It could be, and we don't know this, I'm going to speculate a little, it's possible that Darius saw something in Daniel that was unique to all of the others that, that Daniel had some kind of a relationship with, we'll call it the gods. Or later, Darius himself would say the living God, right? So maybe Darius could intuit. He goes, something's different about this guy. 
He's in touch with some kind of higher power, higher being. It's an extraordinary spirit about him. This is my guy. I'm giving him the job. So you, you've got his place fixed in your mind, right? Stuck in a weird, weird position all of his life, really, at this point. Now, pause there. I want to talk to you about Daniel's name. You know, Shakespeare's Juliet said, what's in a name? And in the Bible, a lot of times, there's a lot in a name. I'll give you some examples of this. First one, Adam. Genesis 1, Adam. It's the proper name given to the first man, and it's also the designation for for humankind. And the name Adam, related in Hebrew, is is a word that means ground or dirt or earth. And that's a great reminder for us that it's God who made everything. It's not us. It's not mankind. It's It's no man. God formed everything, including man. We were just dust. We were just dirt. And it's out of God's power, his creativity, and his grace that he took nothing. He took dirt and said, oh, we fashioned this into humankind. It's a good reminder. It's all in the name, right? It's Genesis 1. Genesis 25, there's a guy named Esau. You know what the name Esau means? It means hairy. It's because he was a hairy baby. Not quite as deep as Adam, but it has meaning. But Esau had a twin brother named Jacob, and he, Jacob came out right after Esau, and Jacob's name means he who supplants, supplanter. And we know the story is Jacob came and he supplanted Esau. He took his birthright, took Esau's birthright. He took his blessing on himself. He's the supplanter. It's in the name. And then Jacob, later we read, he wrestles with God through the night, and God gives him a new name. The name is, you know what it is? Israel. Israel means wrestles with God. And that's what Jacob did. And it's what the entire nation that followed out of Jacob, out of Israel, did with God all throughout the Old Testament. Wrestled with God. Get to the New Testament. Angel comes to a young woman named Mary who's unmarried. She's a virgin. and says, Mary, you're going to give birth to a baby. You should name him Jesus. We'll call him Emmanuel. Jesus means Savior. Emmanuel means God with us. Everything you need to know about who Jesus is, it's in the name right? Savior, God with us. Go a little, a little further forward, there's a guy named Simon. He was a fisherman. That's what he did for a living. Simon's name means hears and obeys. That's what Simon's name means. He's one of the very first to hear the call of Jesus and to follow him and be, become one of Jesus' disciples. Isn't that amazing? Later, as Simon really hears and begins to understand who Jesus truly is in Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Simon gives the right answer, and Jesus goes, you get a new name. Your name is now Peter. And Peter means what? The rock. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? For the millennials who watched wrestling in the 90s. The rock, and Jesus said, upon this rock, upon Peter's testimony about who I am and those who have the same testimony, I will build my church. It's in the name. And I tell you this because Daniel's name has a lot of meaning to it. In, in Hebrew, there's, there's three, uh, there's three, my total English just disappeared here. There's three parts of the word. What is it? Help me here. What is it when you pronounce a name? Oh, gosh, I just totally lost my head here. Syllables, thank you. My goodness, my English teacher <laughs> fought to get me through senior English, and she is going to hear this someday. Three syllables, and in the three syllables, each syllable has its own meaning. Dan means judge. E, that's a syllable, right? It's in the middle of Daniel. Dan, ye. 
It means my, and El means God. And so his name literally means God is my judge. That's Daniel's name. It's all in the name. God is my judge. That's vital. That means Daniel has this grand challenge over his life. God is my judge would be the refrain of who he is. And Daniel, thankfully for us and for God's glory, he grew into the name and he lived up to the name. He's a guy who built his life on God being the final word and the final answer about who he is and about what really matters in this world. So for Daniel, even though he's a conquered people, even though he's a captive in Babylon, even though he has kings over him and foreign peoples over him, he says, look, no king will be my judge, not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar won't be my judge. Darius won't be my judge. These, these vice presidents now below me or, or who will be below me, they won't be my judge. No one gets to say who I am, what is true, and what will be right except for one, one alone. God will be my, my judge. And that's the way that he lived. He lived through the lens of his relationship with God, that he was dependent on God, that he was fully surrendered to God for everything in his life. His life screamed, God is my judge. And we see it in the way that he ate. If you've read that story, we see it in the way that he interpreted dreams. If you've read those stories, we see it in how he wrote this book, Daniel, uh, as you read through it. And we see it in the way that he prayed. And that's what we're going to focus on for the rest of our time this morning, is how did, did Daniel live out his name in the way that he prayed? Now, come back to your Bible. I want to pick up in verse 4. Verse 3 said that Darius intended to make Daniel the grand poobah president and put everybody else underneath him. Verse 4, the other presidents, the commissioners and the satraps, began trying to found, find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could find no ground of, of accusation, no evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was faithful, no negligence, no corruption was to be found in him. It's a problem now. So these men got together and they said, well, we won't find any ground of accusation against Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Because we know he's faithful there and nothing will interrupt that. Verse 6. Then these commissioners and satraps, they came by agreement to the king. His name is what? That's right. You're with me. And they spoke to Darius as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man beside you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Verse 9, therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction. Verse 10 takes your breath away. And this is where everything lies for us today on how we might learn to pray with Daniel, like Daniel. Verse 10. Now Daniel, when he knew that that document was signed, he entered his house. Now in, in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. What a picture. He, he, here's Daniel. As soon as he knew that this document was signed, as soon as he knew that anyone who prays to any God, anyone who makes any, any like devoted statement towards anyone besides King Darius, anyone who prays 
to anyone besides King Darius would be put to death, would be thrown in a lion's den where he would be mauled and eaten. What does Daniel do? Does he run to his closet and hide and start coming up with a plan with just one little light on and hiding in the dark? i got to come up with a way, a loophole, a way to get out of this. How can I pray and do the thing? I, I, I feel I should do the thing. I ought to do the thing I want to do and yet not suffer the consequences for it. That's what we do when we feel threatened, when we feel like someone's saying, you can't do this or else we go, how can I do this but not get caught? Or we go, hey, you know what, I guess I won't, I won't do this anymore. What does Daniel do? It says that Daniel went and continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying, giving thanks before God, just as he had been doing previously. Because Daniel believes prayer is more important than life to him. Why? Because God is his judge. Not Nebuchadnezzar, not Darius, not the Babylonians, not the Persians, not the satraps, not the the wannabe presidents, not anyone else except for God. What God says, what God thinks, what God does is the most important to him, more important than what anyone else might say or think or threaten to do. It's what God says and what God does and what God thinks that's on his heart. And when that's true, you can't not pray. That also will get me in trouble with my English teacher. Double negative. You can't not pray when you really live with God as your judge, when you embody that, right? You can't not go to God and consult him and ask him, God, what do you think? What do you say? What are you doing? What are you going to do? What do you want me to do? How do I orient myself in the midst of this crazy place that I live with these crazy rules and views that are being imposed upon me with all of the limitations that I have, even with powers that I have? God, what do you want me to do? How do you see this? Oh, eternal one, one who is God. God, what do we do here? What are you doing? And Daniel, he knew the penalty would be, would be the lion's den. Daniel didn't know he would be delivered. Spoiler alert, sorry. Got ahead of myself there. If you've never read the story, he is delivered. Daniel didn't know that, though, at this moment when he kneeled. He knew that he had a death sentence on him if he would pray. And he went with windows open, knelt down, and he did just what he always did. He went before God saying, oh, what do you think? What do you say? What do you want? What are you doing? How do I orient myself in this crazy place? Not praying was a worse prospect to Daniel than being eaten by lions. (laughs) Sometimes I think we slip into thinking that these Bible characters are, they're detached from real life in some way, right? We we come to stories in the Old Testament and we treat them like, like bedtime stories with our kids. Maybe we think praying like this is something to be done by monks in a monastery, or by pastors, you know, professional Christians, right? Or by prayer team leaders. That's, th- those are the people who pray like this. But I want you to remember, Daniel was a very powerful political person. That's who he was in this community. He was a very powerful, important political figure in this community. Deeply rooted in a secular, secular community that was polytheistic and cruel and, and just I mean, awful and had no desire, no interest at all in the things of God whatsoever. And yet Daniel lived by prayer. Think about that. Daniel was one of three presidents over 120 governors over an empire about to be given the role of being the singular president over the entire emperor, uh, empire answering only to the king. He was more, consider this, Daniel was more immersed in secular life than any of us are. 
He had more burdens on his shoulders than any of us probably do. Whether you're a school teacher or a parent or a CEO or an engineer or a doctor, this guy simultaneously is living a life of complete integrity before the Lord and fidelity to his people who are captives in a, in a nation, in a, a foreign nation, and a powerful political figure who has risen to the very top. Think about this. This is a man living in such a dualistic situation, and yet he lived by prayer. He breathed by prayer. He wouldn't dare do a thing by, by, without praying. Even in the face of great threat, even in the face of his death, he felt prayer was that important to him. And I wonder how, for how many of us prayer is that important to us. You know, prayer wasn't just an activity that Daniel threw in right before the meal. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for this food. It doesn't rhyme. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It just doesn't rhyme, and that bothers me. It's not a thing that he just, in the morning, threw a couple of words out, and in the evening, some rote thing that, that he had memorized, and he just threw it out so that he could hit the sack and not feel guilty about it. For Daniel, he clung to prayer. It was more important than life to Daniel. It wasn't a little periphery habit that he tacked on in the busyness of his life. No, it was the thing that he did Three times a day, as often as he ate, three times a day. So much so that this was the one thing of all things that his enemies might try to use against him. They looked, they couldn't find anything. They said, ah, but there's one thing we can do. This guy, we know that his prayer life is just three times a day, God. I mean, he comes to work, he does his thing, and then he, it's like he, he just goes and he prays and talks to his God. We can use that. He, he won't give that up. We can use that to take him out, to take him down. Three sticks out to me, not for quantitative reasons, but for qualitative reasons. Not because of the number three, but because of the regularity of it, the devotion to it, the way it seems to speak of how he clung to it. Here's the first thing we might learn from Daniel's prayer and how we might pray with him. Daniel prayed with discipline. Do you see that? It's not about the number three, it's about discipline. Now, it's fair for you to say, but Kevin, when Daniel wrote this, he didn't say, I prayed three times a day and so should everyone who loves the Lord pray three times a day. This isn't a case for legalism. This isn't even a prescription from Daniel. I prayed three times, so you too must pray three times. But it is a description of the way that he clung to prayer that kept him balanced and kept him oriented and kept him in line with the heart of God in the midst of everything going the other way in the society that he lived in. I think the, the discipline of his prayer life came to be one of the greatest strengths that he had as a captive in a foreign nation and yet pressed into a weird, twisted political system where he has to be faithful here and faithful here. He clung to this three times a day prayer to help him find and see reason. Richard Foster said this. He said, of all of the spiritual disciplines, prayer is the most central because, here's why, because it ushers us into perpetual communion with the Father. I think about prayer like this. Um, every day, I've got four kids. Every day, life is crazy. Every day, I have a job. Every day, we have lots of responsibilities. We're at three different schools with the four different kids. Some of you have experienced that before. It's all you do all morning is drive around, right? And, and you're basically an, an Uber service for, for children. They don't tip very well either, I've, I've learned. Every day in the morning, every day in the evening, 
it is vital to me and to my wife, Lindsay, that we look at each other in the eye and we speak. It's vital. It's there. Sometimes it's as simple as like, what do we have to do today? Where do people need to be? It's a lot of the what's. What's on the agenda? What must be done? What's next? What's after that? What did we miss yesterday? A lot of times it's the what's. A lot of times, not just the what's, but the why's. Why are we doing this? <laughs> are we sure this is what we should be doing? No, this is why we do this. This is why we're, we're going to make room for this. This is why this must be done. It's the what's and the why's. Sometimes it's not just the what's and the why's, but sometimes it's just words of affection for one another. Words of encouragement that are deeply and desperately needed on a daily basis, like you're doing good. It's going to be okay. Have a good day. I love you. You're so smart. That's what I say to her. She didn't say that one to me as much. She gives me more occasion to say it to her. It's not her fault, it's my fault. But it's these conversations that we have in the beginning and the ending of the day that do everything to orient me in this crazy life that if I'm not oriented well, like I'm just all day long, I'm just moving and going and I don't even know why. And there are days that we miss it. There are days that where it's just absolutely nuts in the morning and everyone's fighting and nothing's going right. And it's like, just get out of the house, let's go. And that's all you can do. And I know it. I know it for the rest of the day. Even, even like missing the briefest of conversations in the morning, for the rest of the day I know it. Something's off. Something's not right. Right? I suffer. And if we miss this often, if we miss this much, our relationship suffers. You know that. You get that, right? In a relationship, if you're not regularly talking, if you don't have some discipline to your talking, your relationship suffers. The bookends of our conversations, and sometimes there's a text or a call during the day, but the bookends, we got to do this before we go out into the world. And how did it go today? And are we going to make it tomorrow? They're vital. To my marriage, they're vital to my family, they're vital to my, to my being and my doing in life. And so that's why I, I do everything I can to not miss those conversations. They're important to me. I wouldn't dismiss them quickly. And yet I, I, I find myself dismissing those same conversations with God all the time. You get that? When Daniel prayed three times a day, it wasn't about proving himself. It wasn't about legalism. When he prayed three times a day, it was about relationship. Daniel wanted in the midst of everything going on in his crazy life to keep his relationship with the Lord central to all of it. To not miss a step, not miss a beat. To keep the main thing, the main thing. And so he talked with God. He met with God. He asked God questions. He sought God's wisdom. He sought God's comfort, right? He sought God. He declared devotion to God. He offered praise to God. He thanked God. Even when he's being threatened with being thrown in a lion's den, he has things, he knows he has things that says he thanked God. Always giving thanks. And he listened for God's answers. How often did he do it? Once a month, once a week, every other week, every other day. As often as he ate, <laughs> as often as he ate a meal, he's praying. I'm not talking about thank you for this food meal, prayers. But as often as he would consume food, he would pray, which makes you think about Jesus saying, man should not live by bread alone, but by the, by the very word of God, right? Like Daniel was living this out in his day, most especially in the face of temptation, most especially in the, the, the face of threat. Daniel would not miss a prayer appointment with God for anything. Let me ask you this. What if prayer, 
What if relationship building with God through prayer is God's means of strengthening your spirit that you would avoid temptation or that you would persevere through temptation and he would break you free from the world's hold on you? What if, what if prayer is the power that God is giving you to break free from the gravitational force of sin and brokenness in this earth and move you, launch you into God's orbit? What if prayer is that for you? Not just a thing to check you off check off your box to say, I did it today. What if, if that relationship that's built there on your knees is the very place and power of God to bring you into a life that is described by Jesus as abundant, right? I'm not saying that, that three times a day is a magical number, but if we believe what Jesus said in John 15, that apart from him, I can do what? Nothing nothing. I'm driven to pray more. How much more? How much more? What's the number? More. And to do what Corrie ten Boom advised, she wrote, don't pray when you feel like it. Have an appointment with the Lord and keep it. Oh man, I like that because a lot of us, what we do is we pray when we feel like it. You know, when I'm desperate, when I'm needy, when I'm clingy, when I, I don't know what to do, when I'm confused, when I'm sad, when I'm lonely, when I'm frustrated, maybe, maybe when I'm happy, right? When I feel like it, I'm, I'm moved to pray. She says, no, 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 don't let your emotions, don't let your schedule, don't let the situations of your life be what rules and guides your life. Set an appointment with God and keep it that he might rule and guide your life instead. I think that's wise. And that's the place where I can go and grow in knowledge and relationship and faithfulness to God. And that's the place where he is strong, where I am weak, when I go to him in prayer. The first lesson we learned, long lesson, I'll be quicker on the next two. There's three. First one, Daniel prayed with discipline. Second one is this, Daniel prayed with defiance. And I, 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 I like that word. Because, it, I don't know, some of you, you hear the word, you go, defiance. Well, that's naughty. He shouldn't do that. Some of you, like me, are like, defiance? Oh, here we go. I like that word. Something about that stirs me up and gets me excited. So what is it? Let's understand it because we're torn right now in the room over this. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? What's he defiant about? Is it just Darius's law that he has to break the law of God? I mean, yes, that's a part of it. But it's deeper than just that. It's deeper than just praying. He's, he's praying in defiance of a situation that does not honor God. He sees a situation that continues to grow worse and worse in, in, in its gap between where things are and where things should be. When, when you think about effective prayer, I believe effective prayer begins when you perceive that gap. That gap between where a situation is and where God wants a situation to be. That's where par- prayers get really powerful and really effective when we notice the gap there that's why jesus taught us to pray this way when he told the disciples they said how do we pray how should we pray we're going to get to this later in the series but he said you should pray this way father your will be done your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven your will be done your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven things aren't like they should be (laughs) we get that so god there's a gap there's a gap between how life is and the way it should be God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we have this at the front of our minds in prayer, I think why Daniel prayed in defiant ways, why Jesus taught us to pray, that's a defiant prayer. Lord, your will be done. 
on earth as it is in heaven. That's incredibly defiant. It's defying all of the, the, the schemes and the powers uh, of this earth. It's de- defying all of the rulers of society is what's happening when you pray that prayer. And when that's on the front of our minds, it does a couple of things. One, it helps us to better perceive the gaps and to say this isn't right. Now, I kind of got used to this and I didn't realize how not right it was. And now I'm starting to see how not right the situation is. And it begins to motivate me to live a life that is in God's will and God's way. To bring me out of the muck, out of subsisting, out of just kind of existing and walking more now into life and life abundant. Then when we wave kind of our, our, our flag of faith out here to God and it meets up with his flag of power and grace and his will, not only do we begin to experience his righteousness and his healing and his power, but we become conduits of that. And we say, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We perceive the gaps. Things aren't as they should be. God, I want them to be. And we begin to become conduits of his righteousness, his power, his grace, his kindness, his love, his truth into the world around us. When Daniel prayed, he prayed defiant prayers, not just because he didn't like the situation he was in, which a lot of us pray that way. God, I don't like this. That's okay. You can pray that. He didn't like this, I'm sure. He's like, God, I don't like this. But even more so, God, this isn't how it should be. God, I pray that you would change things that don't glorify you. They're no good for anyone. God, would you change this situation for your glory? And he believed God wanted to change the situation. Now you go, oh, well, Kevin, how do you know what God wants in any given situation? I mean, that's just, I don't know what God wants. How do I know that? I got a job, I got a family, I got kids. I, I don't know what I have. I don't have anything. I don't have a future. Like I'm just living day by day. What does God want? I don't know, but I tell you this, it's probably easier for Daniel to know what God wants because three times a day, Daniel sits down and he asks God, what do you want? Pray about it. You don't know what God wants. You don't know what God wants for a particular situation. Pray about it. That's what Daniel is found doing. It's likely that he had some understanding of what God wanted because he had for three times a day for for now from 15 into his 80s been praying, God, what do you want? So let's get practical for a minute. Let's get it out of theory. Let's get it out of history. Let's get it into your life and my life. And let me ask you this question. Where do you perceive gaps in your own life between where a situation is and where God wants that situation to be. Think about this for a second. Where do you perceive gaps? You can, I mean, you can ask this question about any sphere of your life right now, all of them. Where do you perceive a gap in your own life between where a situation is and where God wants it to be? If you're married, in your marriage, where's a gap in your marriage between where it is and where God would want it to be? If you have kids, okay, In your parenting, where is it exactly like God would want it to be? Come on, give me a break, right? Where's the gap? You have a job? I mean, are you doing your job perfectly with complete integrity? Are you balancing like the professional demands that you have on your life with the call of God on your life to be a missionary and to declare his goodness and his grace and his truth to the world? Are you able to balance that perfectly each and every day for every moment that you're living and working? Or is there a gap sometimes? You know, a ministry situation that you're in, maybe you're, you, you're, you're you know, encouraging someone, maybe you have a friend who's far from God and you're, you're trying to introduce them to the gospel, maybe you're discipling somebody, maybe someone's discipling you, and things just really, you know, it's not perfect. Life's not perfect. I'm not perfect. Are you perfect? Because I'm not, I'm not perfect. And so, like, I have a lot of answers to this question. 
I need a lot of paper to write down the situations. I need a lot of time on my knees before God to get answers for, for this question in the areas of my life. If you don't have the answer right now, write this question down. Like, what a great question to take to God in prayer. God, would you help me to see the gaps? Not that I would feel low and feel bad, that I would feel oppressed and crushed. No, that I might see light in life and might follow you into light in life in all of these situations. That I might experience the greatest potential you have for me as a human being, as a friend, as a worker, as a parent, as a, as a, a brother, as a sister, as whatever I am in this world, whatever roles I play, God, would you help me to do it to the highest potential I have in Jesus Christ? It's a great way we can imitate Daniel's prayers in our day. It's about praying defiant prayers, saying, I refuse, I refuse to subsist. I refuse to just exist. I refuse to accept subpar living. I refuse to be a subpar worker and a subpar parent. I refuse these things. And you can bring on the King Darius's, right? You can throw me in lion's dens because my God shuts the mouth of lions. I don't know, I, I spoiled the story again. I keep spoiling the story. You'll read it, you'll read it this week, especially if you're in a life group, you'll read it this week. All right, one more thing I want to mention. He has disciplined prayers, he has defiant prayers, and Daniel prays with endurance. So I say endurance. That means praying before, during, and after the lion's den. His prayers endure. He has these persistent, disciplined, God's will-seeking prayers that endure even the fears associated with the death sentence. Look at verse 10 again. When Daniel knew the document was signed, and what was the document? Verse 8 said that anyone who makes a petition to any god or any man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Daniel goes, oh, okay. When he knew that that petition was signed, he entered his house look at these words he continued he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day praying giving thanks before his God just as he had been doing previous just as he's always always done well I mean what's a death sentence <laughs> I'm gonna go talk to God about that right now here we go God there's a death sentence talk to me about this what do you say what should what should we do what are you doing right now in this his prayers endured through the threat. His prayers endured in the lion's den. We don't get the full picture of this, but I imagine Daniel in the lion's den all night talking to God while looking in the face of lions. I don't think I would stop praying all night long that night. I would not be going to sleep that night. He persisted, and he would not be distracted by that. Uh, and you notice, and we'll look at this next week, we're going to have two weeks looking and praying with Daniel. We'll look at Daniel 9 next week, and we'll see some of the content of his prayers, a little more examine them. But you see that his prayers had to endure a very long captivity, a very long exile. Seventy years. Seventy years he prayed for deliverance. There are a few of you, I won't make you raise your hand, there are a few of you here who are 70 years old. Not many, right? And so for most of us here, we haven't lived 70 years. And for 70 years he lived in captivity and exile, stuck between two worlds. Faithfulness to God and his people really hard job in a really twisted place. Three times a day I'm praying about it. <laughs> Three times a day I'm praying about it and waiting. And what that tells us is there's a lot of praying and a lot of waiting before the change comes. And there's a lesson there. Even good things, even things that you know are God's will. There's a gap here. You know what God's will is. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen right away. Because you prayed about it once. You prayed about it twice. You prayed about it for a week. Sometimes there's a lot of waiting. Sometimes there's a lot of waiting. So what do we do while we wait? 
1 Thessalonians 5 says this, while you wait, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. Man, that sounds a lot like Daniel's life. Ephesians 6, 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Somebody say, all times. In the spirit, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 18, he's giving a parable to them to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. That's what we do while we wait. We pray. How often? While we wait. How long do we wait? While we live. Okay, do you, you see the pattern here? How long do you usually pray? How long do you usually endure in prayer over a thing? Because I'm good at praying sporadically. I'm good at praying in the moment. When somebody says, this is going on, I go, okay, let me say a prayer for you. I'm good at praying when I feel like it. I feel something and then I pray. I'm good at praying for a few times for a thing, maybe a week, maybe a month for a thing. It's, It's different. It's different to pray three times a day for a thing for 70 years. That's different, right? How long do you usually endure in prayer over a thing? How long should we? I'd say this. I wrote this answer. I'd say a general rule is to keep pressing through until God makes it clear for you to stop. <laughs> so how, how do you know if it's time to stop? Well, either God is going to change the situation or he's going to change you in the situation. You follow me? Keep praying until God makes it clear you should stop. How do you know if it's time to stop? He's changed the situation or he's changed you in the situation. Maybe he's changed your perspective about the situation, your view of what's going on, what you value in the situation, or maybe he's just changed who you are, what your place is in that situation. Think about this. When I was 16, um, checking my time here. When I was 16, uh, a seminary student uh, who was working in our church part-time as an evangelism associate or something, he came to me and said, hey, Kevin, I know you feel called to ministry. I wanted to, I wanted to spiritually mentor you. I want to disciple you. Uh, what do you think about that? And I'm looking at him going, man, that's, that's what I want to be. I aspire to be where you are. And so I think that's wonderful. And he goes, okay, we're going to meet at 6 a.m. before school for prayer and Bible study. Those are curse words to a 16-year-old, right? <laughs> I almost backed out immediately, but now I'd already said yes. And so, like, my reputation, my call before the Lord is on the line. Like, okay, I'll be at your house 6 a.m. on Wednesdays. And so we were going to pray and then study the book of Colossians is where we are going to begin. And Richard Piles was his name. He had this idea that we would gather and we would spend the first 15 to 20 minutes preparing our hearts, going before the Lord, talking to the Lord silently in prayer, before we began Bible study at 6 a.m. Did I tell you that? In his house, he had a kneeler. Some of you from your church tradition know exactly what that means. It's a little like soft pillow pad with a little wooden table and you kneel and you pray at it. It's in the name. Remember what's in a name. For me, I had a chair. So I got to kneel at the chair. He had the beautiful kneeler. And I tell you, there was not one time that we met that after 15 to 20 minutes, he didn't wake me up from my prayers. (laughs) Kevin, sometimes physically, Kevin, wake up. It's time to open the Bible and, and, and read. And we got through the book of Colossians, and I think he gave up on me and thought I would never, never amount to anything as a Christian or as a minister. But I struggle to endure. I struggle to endure. That's a snapshot of a much bigger issue in, in my life and probably in your life. I think about the disciples 
I think about what it would have been, what it would have been like for them if they could have greater endurance in prayer. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus told them, watch and pray. I'm going to go over here and, and pray alone for a time. And he keeps coming back and finding them what? Sleeping. Yeah. What if instead of sleeping, what if they huddled in small groups and they were going, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. What if that was the simplicity of their prayer? What if that's all that they had? What if they did that all night long with Jesus? Certainly, Jesus would still have had to die on a cross. That was God's will. That was the plan by which we would be saved. It wouldn't have changed that situation, but maybe it would have changed them in the situation. Maybe their hearts and minds would have been alert to the things of God. Maybe their hearts and minds would have come in line with the things of God. Maybe Peter wouldn't have grabbed a sword and tried to kill, and he just barely missed and caught an ear of a soldier. Maybe Peter wouldn't have denied knowing Jesus three times and kind of destroying himself over it, right? Maybe the disciples wouldn't have lost all hope and run and hidden in fear in the upper room when Jesus died, but instead they would have remembered the things that Jesus had told them. They would have remembered that he said, in three days I will rise again. They would have remembered all of his promises, and they wouldn't have run and hidden. Maybe if they had endured in prayer, they would have been changed in that situation and the way that they walked would have been full of hope, full of faith, full of abundant life and not full of missteps as his disciples. Maybe if they had endured, but without disciplined prayer, without defiant prayer that sought the will of God, without endurance, what did they do? Well, the disciples fell asleep in the garden and they fell apart in the face of their fears. That, just, I mean, good grief, y'all. This is like my life over and over. You relate? Fall asleep in the garden and fall apart in the face of our fears. Without this kind of, of praying. Arthur Pink wrote this in his commentary. Prayer is not so much an act as it is an attitude. I like this. I like this. It's not so much an act as it is an attitude. An attitude of dependency. Dependency upon God. It's a good point for us to end on today. A lot of times when we come to these stories in the Bible, we are quick to make heroes of the characters like Daniel. He's the hero. I mean, look at what he did. And there's a lot of good for us to learn from Daniel, by all means, but Daniel is there to point us to someone who's more heroic and more impressive than himself. You get this, right? You know, Daniel was the innocent one, and yet he was sentenced to death. There was someone who was more innocent than Daniel, the sinless son of God, who was sentenced to death on a cross. Daniel had incredible faith, had impressive faith in God and all of the crazy circumstances of his life and the twisted world that he was living in. But we know someone who did more impressive things and had more impressive faith in God's plan and God's will, even than Daniel in the twisted world that he lived in. It's Jesus, right? Daniel came out of the lion's den without a scratch. Jesus came out of the grave covered in wounds for you and me. Yeah. And that's good news. It's good news because it tells us that Jesus was judged for us so we don't have to fear judgment any longer. God is our judge. Jesus was judged for us. Remember, we just went through Romans 8 for a long time. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. 
And so we now may say, no matter what circumstances come our way, no matter what trouble that we may face in this life, we may say, well, if my God is for me, who on earth can be against me? And though we may have seasons where we walk in the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil, evil because our God is what? He's with us. So surely goodness and mercy will follow us all of the days of our life. When we go to God in prayer in a disciplined, defiant, and enduring way, he will remind us as often as we enter into prayer that those promises are for us. Can I pray for you? God, I pray this morning, like Daniel, giving thanks. Even though some of us in this room have had very difficult things to face in this season. Some, some of us in this room are, are deep in it. Some of us in this room are on a high place and, and things seem to be going right right now. Some of us in this room just feel lost. God, we have all of these, these twisted situations and the brokenness of this world. And sometimes we get so caught up in just trying to row hard, to be a good boy and a good girl, a good Christian, and, and to make it. And some of us are compromising along the way. But God, even in the midst of the struggle, we thank you. We thank you that you are never changing, that you are steadfast in love, that you are steadfast in mercy, that you are full of grace full of kindness in a world where there seems to be no truth that you are the truth. We thank you, Jesus, that you came to earth. You left divinity to enter humanity, timelessness to enter time, glory to put on a robe of humanity and to suffer for us, to pay the penalty for human sin, that if we would just cling to you, that we would just quit trying to prove ourselves or earn anything, but we would cling to you, we might be saved. We thank you. We thank you that you didn't leave us alone, but you promised, you said, I will go away, but the Father will send another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will come, and he'll be like me, another like me, who will help you to know truth and will be with you. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're with us. We thank you, God. And for all of the gaps, those that we have not yet perceived, and, but they're there, and for those that we're oh too aware of, would you help us? Holy Spirit, would you help us to see the gaps and to have hearts that learn to yearn for your will and your way, that learn to yearn for righteousness and learn to yearn for holiness and healing and restoration, not just in our life, but to be conduits of it into the brokenness of this world. Why? So that you would get the glory and so that we could taste and see the goodness of our God for us. A lot of good information, and it's a good example for us, Lord. But we need help. We're people who need help, and we need you. So would you continue just to form our hearts and form our minds? Give us an appetite for prayer. Help us to believe, not just to hear, but to believe and to obey, that we would pray, that we would know you, that we would fall more in love with you, that we would grow in trust for you, that we become more faithful to you, that we would delight in you, that you would be glorified, and we would experience daily the fruit of salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.